right, here we go. Just another sports podcast. Welcome in, everyone. Greg Swatek, Josh Smith here with you. Coming up on the show today, we will talk some NBA playoffs, and uh, we will touch on the recently completed NFL draft. As always, uh, we'll throw some people on the boat. Uh, but first, uh, we have a special guest joining us. Josh has been working very hard to get this gentleman on the program. And uh, for his introduction, I will kick it over to him. Yeah, this is going to be a fun show. Um, I want to introduce this guy. He has uh, worked as a journalist in Maryland for nearly 20 years, including stints at the Annapolis Capitol, the Baltimore Examiner, WMAR, and WBAL. Long ago, he also helped me get published for the first time at Towson University's Tower Light. And sat with me through a nightmarish intro to radio class that almost made me drop out of college. Uh, he is the author of A Season to Forget, the story of the 1988 Baltimore Orioles. He is my friend Ron Snyder. Ron, how are you? I'm doing well. I forgot about that radio class. No way. I remember that was being uh, a, a tough a tough run to get through but we got through it we did we did and i thought it was funny that here like one of the few times that we've actually spoken to each other aside from just texting and stuff since we got out of college that we're on essentially what is you know a recorded show like a radio show so this i thought was pretty yeah. funny but, not not too bad for two old print guys right? <laughs> exactly we did it um so anyway want to get want to get right into this man uh you sent me a pdf of your book i I, I read through it within the last couple of weeks, man, and uh, it was a, it was a lot of fun to read. It, t- it took me back uh, to when I was a boy, um, and I, and I, I wanted to start with just a very simple idea of what made you want to write this story of failure of the 1988 Baltimore Orioles. Well, you know, I, I think you mentioned it, you brought you back to your childhood, right? Yeah. And, and it was kind of the same thing for me. Um, you know, I just uh, remember that season. You remember the you know being. Uh, a child and, and going through all those games, the pain of wondering if our team was ever going to win a game um, every week. And, you know, those were the days before Mass and before the Internet. So, you know, you had a game on TV here, a game on HTS there, you know, a game on the radio every night. So, you know, you were always just finding ways to kind of root for the team. And, you know, my, ironically, the, the idea for the game, the, for the book, uh, came while I was sitting in the press box covering the 2014 ALCS. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, you know, we've come a long way as a, as a franchise, as a, <laughs> as a city. And, you know, I, I don't, you know, when we went through that stretch of all those losing seasons, but none of them were as bad as, as 88. And I said, well, let's, you know, just kind of take it back to memory lane. And, you know, I, I, ironically, my uh, publisher, you know, asked me about it. And I said, look, there's no way. And I started writing it in 2016 when they were a wild card. I said, there's no way that they'll ever – um, be worse than they were in 1988. Famous last words, Ron. The franchise. Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the, like you were saying, the the that franchise was the model franchise for years and years and years. And now, like you know, you and I, are, I think, are the same age. I I remember very little about the 1983 World Championship um, because I was just five years old. So. Um, right. You know, but the, you know, here we are going into 1988. If we're going to take it all the way back there, they were the model franchise in the league. But then five years after they win the World Series, uh, 1988 arrives, and I want you to set the stage for us, and I want you to just try to tell us how in the hell did they get so bad so fast? Well, you know, I think you know today's fans could probably see some of the parallels uh, between uh, the Orioles of today and, and that '88 team. Sure, um, you know. They win the World Series between 66 and 83. Probably, you know, one, the, the top franchise in baseball, if not all sports, you know, going to six World Series over that time. But over that time, 
you know, you could see things behind the scenes kind of slowly chipping away at that Oriole way. You know, scouts um, that were moving up the ranks were going away to other teams. They weren't really doing a good job replacing them. Uh, you know, they, they bring in Cal Ripken, obviously. They draft Cal Ripken and they bring him up. Um, but really the farm system starts drying out. Uh, then, you know, they have, um, you know, they're competitive in 84, um, but really we're never in the race because Detroit got out to a hot start, I think, you know, 35 and 5 or something like, like mm-hmm. that. Uh, a little competitive in 85, and then they start going competitive a little bit in 86, and then towards the end of the season they kind of fall off the face of the, of the planet, drive Earl Weaver into a second retirement, 87 right. comes along. You know, they're trying to kind of get back there fast. They're looking for quick fixes. They're, you know, they're, they're taking chances on free agents. They're bringing in players like Fred Lynn. And, you know, they're trading for players like Alan Wiggins and Jeff Stone and Terry Kennedy and th- along those lines. And, you know, they, they're trying to hold on, and it's just nothing was working. Um, they go into the 87 season. They lose 95 games. Um, they fire you know, the general manager. Um, at that point, and you know, who famously said, "I'm relieved to be relieved." <laughs> uh, you know, it was, a, was was the famous words during that press conference. Cal Ripken Senior gets the job in '87. You know, mm-hmm. um, and you know, they go into '88 season. And look, I mean, they were they were not expected to do well, obviously, but this was a team that still had Eddie Murray in his prime. You know, all the tail end of his prime. They still had Cal Ripken, you know, in his prime. They had players like Freddie Lynn. They still had Mike Boddicker and Scotty McGregor, who were two of the top pitchers of their rotation in the 83 team, hoping, you know, that they could pull stuff together. And, you know, there was a lot of concern going into the season that they weren't going to do well, but nobody kind of anticipated this. They had 55,000 fans at Old Memorial Stadium on opening day, and uh, they drop a 12 nothing stinker to the, to the Brewers, and it just kind of – steamrolled from there um and you know Cal Cena gets fired six games in and they still lose another 15 games right. after that before finally winning a game hey Ron when you have stories like this there always seem to be warning signs that are missed along the way what were some of the those warning signs with the Orioles if there are if there were any well I think it was a combination of a lot of things it was so many things it was it was not really understanding how free agency was working um you know they were Going, uh, signing players, the players they were signing, they were signing more um, on name recognition uh, rather than, um, you know, current production. Uh, they took flyers on players that you know, had potential but had a lot of warning flags. Um, they weren't drafting well at all. So, you know, not only so you, you combine those things along with an owner, you know, Edward Bedder Williams, who was you know, battling cancer and was concerned about you know, trying to get back um, while he was still alive. And, you know, they, they, nothing was working. Um, so it really just kind of built up over time and, and it kind of came to a head in 88. You, well, you mentioned that stinker that they, they threw out there on opening day, 12 to nothing to the Brewers. And, and that's, that strikes me because, and, you, and you, you make this point throughout the book, you wouldn't think that an opener could carry so much, um, so much meaning. Uh, but but this one really started momentum in the wrong direction, didn't it? It was like it, it was such I, a bad game. Yeah, it was such a bad game. And look, I mean, baseball players are you know always say it's you know it's a marathon, not a sprint. 
Um, and so they, we'll get them the next game, and then they, they lose the next game. And then, okay, we'll, we'll come back and we'll get them the next game. And then, you know, they would just find different ways to lose. And it wasn't always getting blown out. I mean, the they really, majority really of true. the yeah. losses during that stretch were you know, three runs or less. They would just have an error here, a, a bad pitch there, a lack, a lack of hitting there. And it was just every night it was another way to lose. And it just kind of you know, just got bigger and bigger. Yeah, I mean, how heavy was that snowball that was sort of rolling on top of him, Ron? I mean, in sports, I mean, so much of the saying is move on to the next thing. I mean, it, it's over. We got we got to focus on what's next. Well, why do you think the snowball got so big for the Orioles there? Well, you know, I think you know there was. I think some of it was um, you know, they, they they go and pull pull the trigger to fire Calcina six games in. You know, the fastest uh, firing of a manager uh, into a season at that point. Um, you know, and so there was a panic right there, and I think that kind of mixed up the chemistry of the team. Cal and Billy were obviously very upset, but they still came to work every night. Um, you know, there were um, players that just weren't weren't happy. There were players that you know just weren't very good, um, and it was just you know every night they think something would happen. I think it started. You know, what do they say? You know, so much of this game is mental. Um, I think it started to just get in their head that they were going to find a way to lose every night, and and, and it just did. And remember, this was a day before, a time before social media, so it wasn't like, you know, there wasn't wasn't even necessarily Sports Center for everyone, you know, at that point in time. So, you know, they weren't, um, you know, having to deal with the they lose of social media, but they were, you know, the, the bigger that the streak got, right. more reporters started following the team. I mean, by the time you know it kind of reached its peak. You know they're on uh, the cover of Sports Illustrated with Billy Ripken. That you know that, that that iconic cover of him just kind of sitting there looking dejected. Um, you know they've got uh, the they're leading the national news every night. They're on the Today Show. They're on the Tonight Show. I mean, you know they're just everywhere. And so I think it just kind of you know eventually just kind of started weighing on them more and more and more. And who was it in the community? Wasn't there a DJ that stayed on the air? You can you can be more specific yeah. about his who he was uh, and what he did. Yeah, I mean, uh, DJ was on the 98 Rock. He said he'd come on the Bob Rivers. Um, you know, they said, he, hey, I'll be on until they win. He figured, figures he's just going to be on um, a day or two. Next thing you know, he's on, again, on on air pretty much all the time for, you know, more than a, um, more than a week. So, you know, he was basically living off of, uh, you know, snack food and, and soda <laughs> for, oh, for that yeah. time. Um, and, you know, it got to the point where, you know, the president is calling and, uh, sending condolences, the Pope's praying for him. I mean, everyone was trying, you know, everything to try to get this team a win. Hey, Ron, I think Cal Ripken uh, learned his father was fired uh, while driving to a game uh, on the car radio. I mean, in this day and age, it's hard to imagine anything like that possibly happening. But but isn't that sort of indicative of the way the Orioles were run? Doesn't that sort of tell you all you need to know about Orioles management in those days? Especially since this was his dad. It wasn't just the manager. It was the star player's father. Right. And, and, and not only that, I mean, you know, he was a lifer. You know, Cal Ripken Sr. Exactly. His dream job was to be the manager of the Orioles. Uh, he was really hoping to get the job in 83 after you know, Earl retired, and they ended up going with Bill Altabelli. Um, and again, and, you know, when they fired Altabelli, they again went, you know, looked over him and went, brought Earl back, and they finally gave him the job in 87. And then he finally seems like this is a job I've waited my whole life for, and this is the time I get it. You know, I, I made it through Brooks and Jim and Frank and all these other great players, and this is when I get the job. Of course, he loved the fact that he got to play with his, you know, sons, 
Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, having your your star player father being fired, uh, you know, and not bringing him into the the fold early in the process. Um, it kind of just says where the Orioles were as a franchise at that point in time. I mean, in fairness to the Orioles, Cal didn't have a chance to refresh his Twitter feed that day, so, <laughs> so, so he so he so he didn't get a chance to check to see if his father had been That's fired true. yet. So <laughs> this uh, this book this book was a lot of fun. It, it like I said, it jogged my memory, you know, of a time the time that I became a fan. And you you recap a lot of these games through the streak and the names that come up and come back are, are just great for, cause like my wheelhouse is like is late eighties, you know, early to mid nineties baseball. And so, right. so it was just great to see these names and, and you even talked to some of these guys, you talked to Harold Baines, which I thought was great. Um, but what, I mean, so what was this process like for you as you, as you went through it and you started to, well, you know, uh, look back on well, these games? Well, look, I mean, being a, you know, a sports reporter, with, with the easiest thing to do is write about a championship team, right? Sure. It's easy to write someone and say, go up to the, hey, tell me about you know, your, your, your win. And so, you know, doing the exact opposite, you're not sure what you're going to expect, right? Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking that I'm going to call some of these players and they're going to be like, really, really? I, I do all <laughs> of this in, in, in professional baseball and this is what you want to talk to me about? Right. But I, I think you know, surprisingly for the most part, I think it kind of time heals all wounds, so to speak. Um, you know, they were, uh, they were pretty helpful. I mean, you know, from, from Fred Lynn to, uh, Joe Orsalak to Jeff Ballard, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about Ballard in a short minute. Um, you know, to, to Cal, obviously, um, you know, they were all kind of just talked about, you know, what, it, what that time was like, um, and, and kind of how they learned from it. Um, you know, it was, uh, an interesting process. I mean, very few players, um, you know, turn turn down the that I was able to contact to get a hold of, uh, turned down the opportunity to talk to me. So you kind of got a lot of different perspectives again from everyone from Hall of Famers like Cal to you know, journeyman pitchers like J.J. Bautista, who's a, a minor league pitching coach for, you know, for the White Sox. So you know, it was a, today. So it was kind of a interesting uh, perspective to say the least. Hey Ron, as you told this story, who are some of your favorite characters in it? Um, you know, obviously, you know, getting Cal's perspective was was was, was great. Um, that, that that's obvious. Um, but you know, look, I, I like Josh said. I mean, I'm kind of we're the same age. I kind of grew up watching baseball at the same time. Uh, talking to Joe Worselak sure. uh, was was probably you know my favorite interview. Um, was he very, was he your you know, favorite Oriole? Book. Was he your favorite Oriole? He was. Yeah, he was probably my favorite Oriole growing okay. out, yeah. just because of that blue collar, you know, way he played the game. Uh, you know, such a Baltimore type player, um, and he was you know he was just getting started, and he kind of just talked about, hey, look, I mean, I, the, the losing streak was tough, but I mean, I was just trying to stay in the majors. I didn't care if I was playing for a World Series team or a team that you know, couldn't win a game. I just wanted to play baseball and be able to stay up here. So, you know, he knew that he was fighting for his career. So I, it was it was neat to kind of hear his perspective. So take us to the to the win when they they finally break the streak. They're playing. It was Chicago, wasn't it? It was Harold. It was Harold Baines and the Chicago White Sox. Chicago on a Friday night. Yep. Um, you know, they bust the game wide open. Do you remember? Wait. Um, do you remember? Was it, was it one of those moments for you as a kid? Like you remember where you were when they won? Oh, I absolutely. I was. Uh, I was listening to the game on the uh, on Channel Two that night. Yes. Um, you know, it was funny because part of my research was I I didn't have a VCR back then, so I actually audio taped a lot of stuff. So I had like the Orioles. I didn't have the whole game, and I had the Orioles on Jack pregame show on tape. Right, which is kind of neat to go back and listen to. So you still had you still had that. 
Yeah, I actually used it for part of my research. That's money. Kind of, kind of, kind of neat to kind of listen to the, you know Scott Garceau and Keith Mills from thirty years ago. Right. Um, you know, doing the pregame show, and you know, so they they went out. It was a Friday night. Um, you know, Mark Williamson, who was a, a you know, lifelong reliever, starts the game. Uh, Dave Dave uh, Dave Schmidt gets the uh, pitches the last three innings. Um, you know, of course, this was a game. Even when they win, it was marred by uh, uh, hardships. But Billy Ripken took a you know a, a mm-hmm. ball off the head. He ends up being okay. Um, you know, they win nine nothing. Last out uh, is a, a ground out by Harold Baines. Well, obviously, he's one of the more beloved Orioles of all time as well mm-hmm. um, to end the streak. So, you know, so they win the game, and I think. You know, they were even getting cheers by the you know at that point. I, I, the only thing I can equate it to to Orioles fans today would be the hitless streak that Chris Davis went through. Yeah. You know, I think it, it, you almost felt you just felt sorry for him at that point in time. You, you know, you didn't want to boo him because you just knew that they couldn't feel any worse than they already did. So they, they you know they finally win a game, and, and I think Fred Lynn summed it up best. He's like, we, we had this sigh of relief, we're kind of excited, and then we realized, oh my, it's you know not even May and we are completely out of this season. Yeah, how many you know, games how many games out of first were the yeah, it was ridiculous. I think there were fifteen and a half games out already or something along those lines. Right. So it was it was ridiculous. Um so, you know, I think they had that they that that, that moment, at least they knew that all the reporters were, were gonna be gone at that point. Nobody was gonna be paying attention to them anymore. But now, you know, they they had to get through the rest of the season. You know, I think the only difference between the only real difference between the '88 team and last year's team was that the Orioles actually won on opening day, mm-hmm. you know, last year. Right. So, so they didn't have to worry about that long losing streak. I was curious about the scope of this project, Ron. I mean, you said you were inspired to write it uh, during the 2014 playoffs. How how long did it take you start to finish to write it? How many interviews did you do? Just just how long did it sort of take you um, to get from the starting line well, to the finish line? It was um it was about a two year process. I mean, I kind of got the idea in 2014, and you know, getting someone to you know to agree to um, sign on, and I, I had a great publisher with Skyhorse Publishing um, that helped me with my first uh, book project. So it was great to work with them again, and um, so it was you know it was about a two year process of you know, doing the interviews, um, doing the writing, going through the editing process. I mean, the good thing was is you know being you know. Lifelong Baltimore and an Orioles fan, the research was pretty easy because I had already had a huge knowledge base, having you know, lived through it as a fan. And you know, the, to me, what I did was I tried to combine. You know, you don't often get to, as, a, as, a, as a newspaper reporter or a television reporter, what have you. You don't, you know, you're, you're objective throughout the whole thing. But as a book, you, you have some more liberty. So I kind of combined that journalistic experience with, with my fan experience. So it was kind of combining those two perspectives. Um, to tell that story. And how much of your reason for writing this was so you could also delve into the why not season? Uh, you know what? I, you can't tell the 88 season without the 89 season. Um, and that was a part of it, too. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, um, I, I don't think I enjoyed baseball more any time in my life than the 89 season. Um, but you, you went through so much pain in um, 88 that – 89 has made it, you enjoy baseball so much more. Kind of like, again, I think for, for today's fans, the ones that dealt with, uh, you know, the 13 straight losing seasons, uh, you know, 14 straight losing seasons, you know, that 2012 team that went to the playoffs. Because, um, again, you just appreciate it. And, you know, 88 ends, 
and you know they obviously do a sell-off. Um, yeah, they, they started making away, moves. Yeah, uh, they they trade away Mike Boddicker, and that Mike Boddicker leads to um, Mike Boddicker leads to Brady Anderson and Kurt Schilling. Uh, they trade away Fred Lynn, that leads to Chris Hoyle. They trade away uh, Mike Morgan to the Dodgers, that leads to Mike Devereaux. They draft uh, they they draft Greg Olson. Um, so you know the ashes of that '88 team really led to that '89 team, and. Uh, you know, just like um, you know, opening day set the tone, and it's like '88 set the tone. Opening day set the tone in '88. The same as in '89. The Orioles come, you know, they, they come back. They they beat the uh, the Red Sox on opening day that year. Um, you know, with Roger Clemens having started that game, and you know, they just kind of continued to um, you know stay in the hunt. And you know, they went all the way down to that final weekend, that infamous weekend in in Toronto. Uh, where they um, just came up short, and unfortunately, there wasn't a wild card that year. I think if there had been, I'm curious to see what would have happened. Um, you know, in part because um, you know they had a winning record against the Oakland A's that year, so who ended up winning the World Series? So maybe they would have matched up better. I don't know, but you know, it was it was a fun season, that's for sure. Well, was the writing process pretty smooth? Were you drinking coffee and soda all night to, to keep you awake, or, or how smooth was the writing process? Um, you know what? The writing process is, it was, um, I think, the, the, easiest, the easiest part. Was once you get, I mean, the, the story tells itself. You know, it, it, you know, it, it, I know that they did a, um, you know, MLB did a 30th anniversary story on it. Um, you know, but it, 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 it kind of, it had 30 for 30 written all over it, right? It's one of those things, I mean, how, it's so, it's something that only happened in Baltimore, you know, and you, and you go back and you talk about the 89 season, but you go back to the 88 season and then, and then they go when they, you know, they win a game, they win the game on Friday night and they come home um, after losing two more games and there's 50,000 fans at Memorial Stadium for fantastic fan sites. Only in Baltimore could that happen. And then they go and William Donald Schaefer announces that Camden Yards is coming. So, you know, everything that we saw in the 90s um, spawned, you know, spawned off of that, that, that 88 season. So it was, you know, just such a, uh, an interesting time in Baltimore sports history. And, you know, I mean, looking at it even deeper, you know, you think about it. The Colts had left town four years earlier. You know, there's no Ravens. There's there's nothing. Right? Maryland basketball is irrelevant at that point because they're dealing with the fallout of Glenn Bias' death, and there's no other sports teams in town. So the only I think the fans who were concerned, obviously, you know, there was talk of the fan of the would the franchise move to Washington? Would it move to Tampa? Would it move anywhere? So you know, I think the Orioles fans wanted to show their team that you know we still support you because they did not want to be a city without a team. Ron, what sort of reaction have you gotten from the book so far? I mean, I, I'm not sure how many people have seen it yet, but, um, but what's been the feedback so far? I mean, I think overall, uh, look, I've gotten a lot of good feedback from especially you know, a lot of the, you know, the, the media members that, that, that dealt with, uh, that covered this team. Um, you know, Ken Rosenthal, uh, you know, had some good feedback. Tim Kirchin had some good feedback. Uh, you know, Scott Garceau, um, you know, right now, again, I think a lot of fans are just, you know, I think a, little, a lot of people I've talked to my age, um, you know, can really relate to this story. Um, so, and then I think a lot of the fans of today are reading the story for the first time. They're like, 
wow, we, we, you know, they can kind of relate to it because of the parallels that they're seeing now. So I think, you know, I think what the fans are seeing in, um, of today and they're wondering, are we ever going to win again? You know, they look at what happened in 89. Then they go look and say, hey, look, they came back in the early 90s, you know, mid-90s and had that great run, 92 to you know, really 97, where they were, you know, contenders every year. So they, they see that sports are cyclical, and it, I think it gives fans hope that, you know, even if a team hits rock bottom, there's a chance for it to, them to kind of uh, get through it. Yeah, it, doesn't, it might not even take a year like it did with the, uh, the 89 team, which was, which was so, so successful. Yeah. yeah. Not gonna, not, not sure gonna happen. Not gonna happen. This know. no, definitely not. Definitely not. Yeah, what you guys just said dovetails beautifully into my next question. What's your view of the current state of the Orioles, Ron? Well, I mean, I think you know. Look, uh, um, we knew that it was going to be pain. I mean, you know, I don't think anyone. Look, you've seen what Elias, Mike Elias, has done on his other stops. You know, you saw the pain that Houston uh, went through. Um, and, you know, it's going to be a process. You know, the, the majority of the players on this team now are not going to be here or with this team is, uh, turns it around. Um, you know, you look at the, the, the most of the players that we're all interested in are in Bowie and, and uh, uh, Norfolk and, and below. Um, you know, I think the, the one fear that I have is that when, when uh, you know, Elias and company turned it around in Houston – they were ahead of the curve, right? They were doing all of the stuff where anyone else was, right? And sports are a, uh, you know, uh, there's um, lots of imitation in sports, right? We all see it in, in the NFL. You know, everyone's now looking for the hot shot um, offensive guru, so to speak. And you see it in the NBA, how they build teams with big three players now. Um, so the question is, is that is everyone is doing this, now with with analytics and and the rebuild and things along those lines you know are the orioles um going to be able to do it better than everyone else so that's kind of where we're at at this point is chris davis back you know what i I, he i don't know if he's back but you know i don't know if he's back but he is definitely um swinging a good bat i mean he's actually batting better than uh, i think since uh, mid-April, I think he's actually batting better than the other Chris Davis. <laughs> so, um, you know, he's, he's, I think, one of those things where, you know, the hardest thing to do in sports is, is to end it, you know, is get that first win, to get that first hit. I think once he kind of got that first hit out of the way, he relaxed a little bit. Um, there's no pressure on him at this point um, because the team's not expecting, nobody's expecting anything of him or the team. So I think he's kind of just finally started to relax and, uh, you know, I mean, I, I hope for him and for the Orioles that you know, he's able to, um, you know, to, to turn his career around. Right? Because, I mean, say what you will about his performance. He's never been a, a problem in the clubhouse. He's always been good to talk to the media. Um, he's always been, you know, uh, reaching out and, and done charity work in the community. So, you know, you, you, you don't want to see someone who's been a, you know, been, been good in the community you know, not be able to succeed on the field. Um, you know, and I think, you know, you look back, um, you know, Chris Davis is really the cog that kind of, I think, led in part to where we are with the Orioles. Right. You, know, they, you know, you go back to 20, 2014, you know, uh, Manny Machado blows his knee out, what, for the second straight year. Right. Um, so they don't lock Manny up at that point because, so, you know, who wants to give $300 million to a guy who's blown out his knee twice? Um, 
So then they go, they have to lock up Chris Davis. Nobody said that was a bad decision when they did it, right? Right. Um, but then again, you know, you've seen the production since then, and you know, they've never been able to fill any void since they've um, since that 2014 year. They, they don't re-sign Nelson Cruz. Um, you know, they, they take chances on, on poor pitching. Uh, they make uh, they, they they try to capture lightning in a bottle with with certain players. And it doesn't doesn't work. So you can see the parallels. You see those parallels leading up 2018 that you did in 2000 to 1988. So, you know, it, it's real easy. Uh, it's real hard to win in sports, but it's real easy to lose. Well, yeah, it looks like the process is, uh, you know, it's it's in motion. So uh, we'll see how many years it takes for it to happen. But I think you're right. Hey, Ron, before we let you go and um, before we let you tell everyone where they could find this book, I was curious, what was more painful, the the 0-21 or the 115 losses of last season? Well, you know, I think, you know, look, a perspective is everything. Um, you know, when you're nine nine years old, um, you know, your sports are everything, right? I mean, it's, uh, you know, you live and die with your team. I'm as big a sports fan, you know, as anyone. But I think when you're nine years old and your whole world revolves around your team, uh, it's painful. Um, when you're, you know, 40 years old and, you know, you've got a you know, family at home that's healthy and, you know, you're, you're doing well in, in life, uh, you realize it's tough, but it's not the end of the world. So uh, I would have to say probably 88. Um, you know, but again, it's not easy watching, watching the way this team has uh, has performed the last couple of years. And it was interesting because, you know, as I'm finishing up the book, you know, you see them losing a bunch of games, and it was about, you know, I think it was as early as May when I'm looking at their tracking their record in 2018. I'm like, oh my gosh, they're on pace to lose more games than they did in '88. Um, you know, and it was ironically, it's actually I think helped promotion of my book because. You know that that's where the parallel lies. Um, so you know they they kind of look back at that '88 team and kind of compare to, to the last year's team. So we'll see what happens. Where can people find this book? Well, the book is available on Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble, and uh, you know look wherever um, you know books are you know, are typically sold uh, online or in brick and mortar stores. Um, I'm going to be at. Uh, uh, it's like it's a little outside of your your core audience area, but I'll be at uh, the Barnes and Noble in, in White Marsh uh, on um, May the fourth uh, at one o'clock. So you know, if anyone is interested, I'd be glad to come out and uh, sign the book. Awesome. Well, it's uh, really happy. I'm really happy that we were able to catch up with you. I know you got to uh, get to a class at Towson that you're teaching, right? What what do you what class are you teaching? Uh, I'm media ethics. All right. Uh, once again, the book. <laughs> Once again, the book is called A Season to Forget, uh, the story of the 1988 Baltimore Orioles. Uh, the author is uh, Ron Snyder. And, and Ron, uh, we really appreciate you joining us today. Thanks, Ron. I, I appreciate you guys having me on, and uh, I wish you guys the best of luck. And hopefully we can do this again one day soon. Absolutely. All right, Ron, have a good one. You have a good one, too. Do-do-do. We need some more sound effects. Uh, that was a good uh, one. on the podcast. So, um, but yeah, he was he was he's great. I he spoke very well and, and told some good stories there. Yeah, he's a big fan. So, um, uh, you know, this was probably a passion project for him for sure. So he's written a couple other. Uh, he's written one other book. I think it was about wrestling. Uh, he's a big wrestling fan as well, which we didn't touch on. But um, and I think he's got another project in the works as well. He's a really busy guy. 
How did you how did you get wind he was doing this book? Did he oh, tell you about it? Yeah, or, he and I stay in touch uh, via social media, and I, he 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 tagged me in, in a bunch of um, promos and stuff when he first started working on it. So I knew it was coming out probably like a year ago. I think he you know he he really started to to pump it out there um, that he was that it was going to be coming out. So uh, I definitely wanted to to get him on here because it's you know there's a lot of interest in, the, in this area. I think it'll probably do it'll probably sell pretty well regionally uh, for sure. Well, and now especially that. Uh, uh, a Thomas Johnson graduate, uh, a Frederick County native, is is currently on the roster. Yeah, uh, Brandon Klein his uh, his pitched twice now for the Orioles, both times against the Minnesota Twins. Uh, he was sent down right away after his first appearance at Camden Yards, but he but he's stayed on the roster uh, uh, through this uh, recent uh, road trip. Uh, he's he's in Chicago with the team now, so uh, so that'll drum up even more interest in the Orioles around here because we have we have a local player. Uh, do you short, sort of share his perspective that? Now that you're older and you sort of know what this rebuild is for the Orioles, that the '88 season was, when you when you're nine years old and a kid, it, it was much more painful to go through that. Yeah, I mean, I was really just becoming a, a fan. Um, that that very season, I had I guess first started collecting baseball cards, you know, like in 1987. So I was sort of starting to understand who some of the better players were and all of that stuff. And I was just beginning to watch it on television. So, and I had played when I was, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure what year I started or how old I was when I started playing. I was probably like seven, but I just had become, you know, a fan of a big fan of this, of major league baseball right around that time. And so it was hard for me to wrap my mind around the, the idea that they're they not could winning. not win. They're not winning yeah. for weeks. Where are all the wins? But it is funny that like, I, I asked him like, if he remembers where he was and I absolutely remember where I was. I think my parents had gone out with their friends um, we were at, uh, their friend's house. They'd left us there, you know, watching television with like a bag of pretzels or something. Yeah. Cause you were a kid that grew up on, you, cause right. you didn't have cable TV growing I up. I did. Right? But like yeah. he said, I think that game, that particular game was on WMAR. So it was on TV and I just remember watch sitting there watching the game. And I remember, I remember the final score was nine to nothing. I don't remember as much about the game, um, as I thought when I was reading, reading Ron's book. Um, but I do remember Billy Ripken getting hit in the head. Um, I think I had met Billy Ripken like right around that same time. I think I got his autograph somewhere um, locally. So, um, yeah, that was one of those moments. But, you know, and he's absolutely right. The next year, um, it, it made me more It made me more of a baseball fan. I, it cemented my love for that sport was watching that team because it was the complete opposite. There were all these young guys. There was great chemistry on that team. Um crazy goofy things were happening constantly where they you know they would where the year before you know an error would turn the tide and they would lose a game by a run like things were bouncing their way the following year and they were getting those wins and it was just it was this young group of like no-name guys like who knew like who Randy Milligan was before this or Mike Devereaux or you know Jeff Ballard who was one of their star starting pitchers um so it was neat to see them kind of come into their own all of a sudden and make that run. And I remember, I remember lots about that season. Yeah, it's the classic example of where the struggle sort of makes you appreciate the story once once things uh, turn around. And without the struggle, you don't maybe appreciate things quite as much. I mean, you love you loved Devereaux. Devereaux was one of your favorite yeah, he players, was, right? and yeah. that was his rookie year, eighty nine. Um, he went on to have a really nice career. He played a long time for for the Orioles, and then he he won a World Series with the Braves, I believe. Um, so anyway, um, a lot of, I remember a lot of those guys looking at, looking at his book is like all these names were popping up. It was just so fun to just think, Oh my God, I haven't thought about these, this Ron Kittle or like your, or just whoever, these random names that he would drop and you know, these game, these game recaps. And it's just like, Oh man, I forgot about that guy. Probably still his baseball card somewhere. 
Um, so it really was a nice jog down memory lane. Did you get the chance to go to Orioles games as a kid, or were you pri- primarily watching games at friends' house yeah. or when they were on local TV or on the radio or something? Yeah, I like mean, that? it was. It, it, like like I like you mentioned, I did not have cable television, so unless they were on WMAR, WJZ, I wasn't getting to watch them. So I listened to them on the radio a lot. That was in, and I think Ron probably did the same thing. We went to maybe two games a year or something. I vividly remember my very first game, you know, at, at Memorial Stadium. They played against the Blue Jays. I remember sitting on the first base. I remember I, I remember vividly sitting like maybe we were thirty rows off the field, and when we got there and I sat down, I was like, oh my goodness, we might get a foul ball. First batter of the game, I think it was Tony Fernandez. You remember Tony Fernandez oh, led Jays, off for right, the Blue yeah. Jays and hit a foul ball like that went a couple of rows behind us. Did you, did you have your glove? I mean, were you prepared? I don't remember if I took my glove, but I, I mean, it came flying over us at such speed, man. I, there's no way you I had no chance, that. yeah, yeah. But I, I do remember that. We, we would only go like once or twice a year. I remember seeing them play the Yankees one year, and that was when I had like, I, the Orioles weren't very good. Um, this was after. This was probably in the early '90s. Uh, I became like a Don Mattingly and Dave Winfield fan just because I was collecting baseball cards back then. And so we went to this Orioles-Yankees game. Don Mattingly hit a grand slam, and Dave Winfield, who was my favorite player at the time, had an inside-the-park home run, if memory serves. A big guy lumbering around the bases He was incredibly athletic. Not many people know that Dave Winfield was drafted in all three major sports. The Minnesota Vikings drafted him. The San Diego Padres drafted him. And I believe it may have been – the Clippers of the NBA. There was another team. I just remember how big he was. I mean, yeah. he was a really six, big six. guy. Yeah, right. So anyway, we, we would go like maybe twice a year, just like any normal, probably middle-class family. Yeah. So yeah, great story. Uh, it, was, it was nice to have uh, uh, Ron on there. So uh, so the NFL draft uh, took place over the weekend, and uh, I'm, I'm watching what the what the draft has become. And I, I think you and I sh- share, share the same feeling on this. Like, all this is is football teams picking players. It's, it's like if you, it's like the schoolyard. If you just line guys up and just said, "I'll take you, I'll take you, I'll take you," and and it, it's basically a schoolyard exercise that has become this mega money event that attracts apparently six hundred thousand people. Did you it, see it, the it, streets of Nashville? Yeah, I, I, I could not. Believe plus, that. it was pouring rain too on, yes. on on the first night Thursday, and and the streets are, are jam packed. There's really nothing to see with the draft. <laughs> Oh, I mean, it's just teams. I don't think you could pay me. You would have to pay me a lot of money to attend the NFL draft. Right. And and, and I remember the good old days when, I mean, and we're going to date ourselves a little bit here, but the draft started at like 11 a.m. on a Saturday morning. It was beautiful. Like, like ESPN came on, and there was Chris Berman. There was Mel Kuyper. It was an 11 a.m. start, and it would go all day, but they'd be get most of the way through it in one day on Saturday. And then they'd finish up with with a couple of the late rounds on Sunday. And then the draft was over in two days. Now it's this three day event. The first round isn't over until midnight Friday, uh, the first day. Then we have two more rounds on Friday into Saturday, and then the rest of the draft is Saturday. You have all these ridiculous cheerleaders that come out, <laughs> like team representative <laughs> fans, um, some some folks that just want the opportunity that some uh, uh, underprivileged fans that would just. I uh, get a cool chance to right. announce their team's pick, but it's like way more of a production than it needs it's to be. Excess, yeah. it is total excess. Yeah, it's just ridiculous what it's become. I, I mean, I'm I, trying I to think. think. I'm trying to think. Twenty, let's say, twenty-one years ago, when I, I was a Vikings fan, 1998, the Vikings drafted Randy Moss that year, and I remember it being like an amazing thing that they got Randy Moss. I have no idea where I was. I I didn't watch it. 
I found out about it somehow like that day, but I wasn't. You might have read the newspaper. Yeah, I mean, like I, no, I don't think it was the next day. I did find out about it that, but again, I didn't have cable television, and it didn't air anywhere except table cable television. Now it's on three networks. Of course, ABC airs it. They own ESPN, so it's on ESPN. It's also on the NFL. I, I always watch the NFL Network because I'm, 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 I like their broadcast better than ESPN's. Is the ESPN and ABC broadcast the same, or is it, are they doing no. a di- different broadcast? No. So I think the ABC telecast was the College Game Day crew. Okay. So you had Lee Corso, which was odd. Who, All right. And then you had the the ESPN crew was Mel Kiper and um, some of the more well-known football analysts. Yeah. All that. right. So if there's any company that knows excess better than the NFL, it's ESPN. So ESPN yeah. and ABC are essentially the same thing. Yeah. So we need two separate draft broadcasts from the exact same company. I mean, it's... <laughs> It's just got overkill. It's just gotten ridiculous. This thing could be over in in a day if they if they Look, wanted to start it at like nine a.m. Exactly. I I happen to be off Thursday. I didn't even plan it that way. But th- I have a lot of Thursdays off. You were off Thursday. Um, I fell asleep, Greg. Like I waited until my team picked at number eighteen. I think I stayed up until the Ravens drafted Brown, and then I fell asleep. I, I don't know what time it was. It was it was after eleven p.m. I'd had a couple of beers. I'm like. I'm not sitting here waiting to see who the Patriots pick with the last pick, so I nodded off. Well, it was craziness in here in the office. I know John Cannon was doing pages. They didn't even know. Um, I think they were barely aware that the Redskins had traded back in to draft right. Montez and, Sweat. And, it's going, and our deadline's midnight, right. so this is pressing right up against our deadline. They're, and they're handling here at the office. Now, I, you know, I, I know nobody cares about newspapers, but yeah, you know, he's like, handling well, it's all like, this it's other like, stuff. Woe is us. Like our right. jobs are so tough. Right. But my point is, it doesn't need to be. This stuff does not need to be going on at 11:30 p.m. Right. Uh, it, and, and what do we know? I mean, all it is is just hours upon hours of right. just blather and speculation i mean and slapping it's really good for the mute button right I, I i had it on mute a lot of the night i will be honest with you i mean all these proclamations and declarations i mean we don't know anything like uh kyler murray could be a complete bust and he was the first overall pick in the draft lots of quarterbacks that have gone number one overall haven't even panned out we're slapping grades on these picks instantly you, at, you've always you've always at, graped about that as, as they're being made i mean yes i know they have a television show to do and they we can't wait three years to say "Ooh, kyler murray's a pretty good player it, does, it doesn't take that long anyway but still it's like all this blather and speculation and could this happen and could that happen or this guy is not going to work out i mean no one knows anything and they're just talking for hours upon hours upon hours. nothing is fact-based so, because like you're saying it's all we don't know anything but everyone loves it though they i mean the, the, the ratings are through the roof there are six hundred thousand people in the street i i uh, laughed at the stories of the of the bridal parties uh in, <laughs> yeah. in, in nashville those poor uh, those poor girls uh, had they, no idea that right the draft they, they, they're showing up in nashville ready to have a good time and all of a sudden it's like their worst nightmare it's a bunch of guys dressed up in football jerseys yeah. like everywhere and, yeah. they, and they can't get away from it they're like what it's april right it's not it's not the fall i mean the, the, i guess in the fall they could kind of brace for it but but when, when they're, they're not expecting it in april and they're expecting to have a good time in nashville and they're just surrounded by literally what couldn't they could if you had to if you had to ask them what would be worse I don't think they could come up with anything. Yeah, that was this, a beautiful this, spinoff story. Like this, is, a great this is like their worst sidebar. nightmare. Like, what are all these football fans doing in here? Yeah. Or, or um, doing here? And then you have all these people saying, well, well, I'm not letting my husband watch football now or, or something like that. Or he, I mean, it's just, yeah, had a lot of funny stories with, 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 yeah. with the bridal parties that they got. A little surprised <laughs> upon arriving for, the, for I, their big weekend in Nashville. I really could not believe some of those aerial shots. 
of the streets. Now, I've never been to Nashville. I know it's probably crowded all the time because it's such a tourist spot. But good Lord, the number of people that it drew. Why would yeah. you ever? That just seems to me there's there would be nothing fun about that. Right, and you can't hear anything. I mean, you're waiting for just these announcements to be made. I guess they bring some entertainers up on the stage every once in a while to like kill time. Yeah, there's Taylor the, Swift like but, three football fields away performing. Well, I, I mean, on the draft stage, I think some presenter or entertainer comes up to tell some jokes. I don't know what they do, tell jokes or sing songs or right. what, something to keep the crowd entertained. But why wouldn't you just like sit in your living room at home? <laughs> With your with your beer, that's not nearly yeah. as expensive as the one you just bought at the bar, exactly. and just just watch it's about the, the experience, great, and, and just watch it unfold on 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 the TV. I mean, and it, it astounds me every because this is like it's the momentum is growing yeah. with this thing. The snowball is growing. It sort of started didn't a couple of years ago. They had it in Philadelphia. Yeah, and it was and huge. It was outdoor. Then, yeah. yeah. And and just like you said about the crowd, I mean, it's pouring rain on Thursday night. You could see the. It's hard to see rain on TV. You could see the rain on the did TV, you, and there's still did you see hundreds of thousands of people in the street. Did you see the tweet that I sent out about it? Because I I turned it on, I saw the umbrellas. I was like, I tweeted something like, "Man, it's too bad that the NFL draft didn't get rained out because then they could continue to do more previews because they really don't do enough previewing of the right. NFL draft." Right. And all you're you're standing <laughs> in the rain waiting to hear someone. Say who your team picked, and Wait, a lot of times these fans, to hear a name. A lot of these fans, like they'll they'll pick a player. These fans have no idea who the player yeah. is. Yeah, uh, or, or 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 the, the opposite reaction. They'll like be booing or whatever. Like how <laughs> how do you know? Like the classic example was the Giants. Like everyone hated the Giants yes. pick, and it, it probably was a little reach. This guy was an average quarterback that seemed to, or an above average quarterback at Duke, and Duke's not exactly a, a juggernaut football program, so. Yeah, it might not have been the greatest pick in the world, but who knows? I mean, it, that's 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 sort of the point. Like, no one knows anything, know. and we're just talking and talking and talking. So, right. so, I mean, I enjoy the draft. Well, Browns fans have for years because it re- like was the day that represented hope, hope. For your, hope for your team. It was like the guy that was going to turn things around. Right. And then finally, it happened last year with with the guy you said it was going to, and I didn't believe you. Right. Um, we'll keep um, touching on B- that. B- Baker Mayfield. We'll keep mentioning so, that over right. the next 15 years that we do this podcast. Right, because in the fall, I'll be wearing my Baker Mayfield jersey <laughs> in here while while we record the podcast. I, yes, so, yes. Um, so, so yeah, the, the draft is, is – it's almost boat-worthy. Um, like, <laughs> like, like, like what's what this draft has become, but but – people i mean Put maybe draft on the boat maybe know? maybe we're a couple of old men josh now but but i, I just i've don't been get, accused I, of being a you know an old curmudgeon for sure and sorry maybe we're already get off our lawn guys we are but um but i know I, I i just don't get what the what the draft is yeah becoming it could be done in 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 one day so um nba playoffs uh i i mean i i think i think this round is 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 getting interesting i mean you have the warriors and the rockets you have the and all the drama that's swirling around there, and we'll touch on that in, in our in our boat segment. Um, uh, Boston hammered Milwaukee in the first game. I, th- I think that caught some people off guard. And then you have two lower profile series. I guess the Sixers and Raptors are now one one, and then uh, Port and then Denver beat Portland last night. And those are sort of the undercard <laughs> of, of of the two other series, uh, with Milwaukee and Boston and in uh, Golden State and uh, Houston. Um, Houston, I mean, they're they're already defeated before this thing even starts. You think? With, with, with the with the crying about the the, the referees and all that stuff. So. I mean, I see your point, but they are they have they have a reason. They they they're 
you know, they're going to make this a series. It's I don't think it's. No, I think I mean they, they lost by I four think. points in in, in yeah. game one. So and, and with and some this, silly fouls. And this this matchup is what their whole season has been about. So uh, that's going to be a fun one to continue watching for a lot of reasons now. Yeah. So uh, they, yeah, did you see this? The Steve Kerr. Did you want to mention the Steve Kerr thing that uh, that I tweeted at you or I sent you on Twitter? Yeah, he this, like he like came in and he fell. Yeah. He, he fell down and said it was a. Fa- it came into his press he, conference. He came into his press conference and fell into a reporter and he's like, oh, oh, sorry about that. That was a foul right. on her. Yeah. Uh, right. He was poking fun at this whole situation. Uh, yeah, we might as well segue into the boat uh, segment now because I'm th- I'm throwing James Harden and the whole Rockets organization on, on on the boat. Every one of them because they. They came in. They're putting out all this data about how the Warriors got all these calls last year, and and that's why they won. And all the missed calls in Game Seven last year. What, what that report didn't include was the twenty-seven straight missed threes the Rockets <laughs> had in, had in. Uh, hello, as Herm Edwards w- would say. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's not why they lost Game Seven last year. It's because the Warriors got a couple calls. James Harden is the king of getting foul calls. I mean, that's that's how he scores 40 points a game and 20 points come at the line because he's so good at drawing fouls, even if it's not a foul. Like, he's great at just driving into the lane and just suddenly, like, throwing his arms up, and then then he gets a whistle and and goes to the foul line. That's why he's the greatest offensive player in history, right? Yeah. So James Harden is the king of getting beneficial calls, and now – Game one doesn't go their way, and, and they're whining about the officiating. So I think I think the officiating was in their heads before the series started, and I think it could really sink them if if they let it continue. You got anybody else for the boat? No, I just want. I'm I'm just tired of the. Ro- I'm one game in. I'm already tired of the Rockets, and they're, and then they're whining. So, <laughs> well, I haven't even been able to watch hardly any of the NBA playoffs. I didn't. Even, I think Sunday was that first game. I didn't watch a second of it. We were busy doing other things. Yeah. So I'm kind of angry with myself. Hopefully, I can. The game two is tonight, right? We're, right. This is Tuesday yeah, we'll, night. we'll have it on the, in the office here. So. Um, yeah. Well, so my my uh, my boat member is also and sort of sort of NBA related. I don't know. He's not related to sports really at all, but he continues popping up all over my damn social media feeds, which are filled with you know sports writers and sports personalities. And he's Drake, and you've heard me talk about Drake before. Can you name? Can you name a Drake I don't, song? No, I don't. I don't. Off the top of your head? No, I, I have heard. I mean, we're not cool, but but no, I, I don't think I don't think I can either. We're not. So. I, I think my wife she 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 enjoys Drake. I think I've heard some of his music because she plays it. I don't like it. I don't understand why everybody is constantly talking about Drake. It's almost like the Kardashians. Like. I, I don't get it. I don't see the talent. I don't understand why he's he, everywhere. He is to the Raptors what Jack Nicholson right. is to the Lakers. Like if, Spike if, Lee. If, right. right. Spike Lee and the Knicks. Like if there's a Raptors game on TV, we're cutting away to Drake like, I get like, like every three seconds. Right. So I get that part of it. What annoyed me was the other day I'm scrolling online and I see his name again pop up. And it was in reference to Vlad Guerrero Jr., like he welcomed him to the big league or something like that. I don't know Drake because he plays for the Blue Jays. Uh, I guess yeah. He has nothing to do with sports. Stop putting Drake in my sports feeds. I don't want to hear about him. So to to rectify that, I'm throwing him on the boat. Go go away, Drake. Drake can entertain the yes. people on the boat. Got, I put I sent a couple of whom, probably musicians. half of whom don't don't know who he is, but or couldn't name oh, Drake. No. Song, Most of those so. guys probably know him. Well, I think yeah, we, we've put we've put some other musicians on there. They can. 
they can entertain the the masses. Yeah, that's that's true. So Drake's Drake's a good one for the boat. So, yeah. Uh, anyone else, or should we go to scene or to be seen? Nah, that's it for me. We can go to scene or to be seen. Do you, do you have one? I do. I have I have several actually. Go ahead. Um, I have, and they're they're all they're all stories that I read. First of all, uh, I'm gonna I'm, I want to give you props on the story that you wrote in today's Frederick News Post. Oh, thank you. About Cal Ripken's appearance at the Keys game. It's a really fun read. There was a lot of. Uh, lot of good little quotes in there from people fans of his you got to talk to him we did not expect to get to talk to him right and that sort of changed my thinking because going into it i was just thinking i'll just talk to the guy who won this raffle to meet cal ripkin and that was going to be the extent of our story and no offense to anyone but those stories aren't the most interesting stories like joe blow meeting cal ripkin what would you think so so my story kind of changed when i actually got a chance to 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 go into the suite and, and, and chat with Cal while he was visiting with those fans and sort of see that interaction. So that sort of changed right. my thinking to the story and watching Cal try and get from the field to his suite, which w- was an amazing scene because he was being swarmed by people. I mean, his, there were a couple of police officers, his handlers and some keys officials were trying to shepherd him through this crowd from the field where he threw out the first pitch to his suite. And it was sort of an amazing scene that this guy hasn't played baseball in 20 something almost 20 years yeah almost um uh and and he still has such a huge following and people are so drawn to him still so so that yeah that that scene gave me an idea for the story too yeah i and and one thing one subtle thing i want to point out um in your story and this is something i'd like to do a little more often if we can is talk a little bit more about the nuts and bolts of writing if anyone even is interested in it that listens to this but something that you did so i'm reading the story last night i read it i placed it on the page i needed something to break up the text a little bit on the page and i started to go to try to find a pull quote and i had read the story and i enjoyed it and i remembered the story and i was like okay well let me see if i can find a little bit of a, a quote that can fill up this space that i needed to fill up and it's not that i couldn't find great quotes it's that i couldn't find a long one and to me short quotes are the best now, yeah, little punchy short quotes, and, yeah. and and especially when you interview a lot of people, I don't think I don't think readers may understand this. You talked to a lot of different people last night, a lot of fans. You were on deadline, and so you don't have time to go back and listen to everything that you may have talked to them about, or maybe you just jotted that down. One line quotes are money for stories like that, especially if you're talking to a number of people. Um, so I enjoyed that about your story because it was, you know, you had you had. Quotes from a number of people, a lot of sources, but they were all yeah. very succinct. Well, I sort of sort of stumbled into that by accident because my tape recorder <laughs> wasn't really That's cooperating fine. last night. Right. So I was forced to just to jot down things. And you can't, when you're listening to someone talk, you can't just get word for word these right. extended quotes. So it sort of forced me into using shorter and quotes. And honestly, when I've done stories like this, um, for an example, I think I did a story about Chuck Foreman when he came back to Frederick. Oh boy, what was it? Three or four years ago, when he's when when they named the field at Ballinger Creek yeah. Park after him, right? Um, and I went there for a story very similar to this. I knew I was going to talk to Chuck, but I was also going to talk to a bunch of his fans. I deliberately didn't use my tape recorder because you're only going to sit down and talk to these people for like two minutes each, and and, and the readers generally don't know who they are, and they're and they're just general general just general fans like anybody else. So you're really just getting quick quick snippets from these people so i deliberately didn't use it because i knew it was going to slow me down to have to go back and listen to it all at the end of the night so anyway that's a nuts and bolts story about writing i wanted to get that out there i read something on si.com by john taylor the other day and it took me back much like ron's book took me back to my childhood fandom of baseball this story took me back and the headline is need for speed the royals can run like no one else so it's about the kansas city royals and it's about the burners that they have in their lineup. So they have Billy Hamilton now, who is uh, one of the best base dealers in the game. They have um, 
Whit Merrifield, I think, is one uh, is another a guy. Mitch Meyer, um, and Mo- uh, gosh, what's his name here? Mondesi. I I wish I knew these guys better. This story introduced me to them, and it's talking about how they're stealing more bases than any. They have way more steals than anybody in the big leagues, and they're stealing bases at a clip that's reminiscent of like 1987. So back when like Ricky Henderson and Vince Coleman were swiping 100 a year. So we'll see if that continues, but. It's a style of play that I love, and I don't. You don't see it in the in the major leagues hardly at all. Um, and I've seen clips of these guys, and they're embedded in the story. Uh, Billy Hamilton's he he scored on a sacrifice fly from second base. On uh, this Mondesi kid was on second base, and he scored on a wild pitch from second base. So we're talking about some of the fastest guys, not just in baseball, but maybe in in professional sports. Like these guys are just speed demons and they they've said in the story that they purposely have not raced at 100 yards because there's a lot of people that wonder like who's the fastest among these four guys and they haven't they purposely sort of like haven't done it because then they know okay then there'll be a result and they won't be able to trash talk like only that guy that wins will be able to trash talk whereas now these guys are like constantly trash talking each other and it makes for a really fun like clubhouse and um anyway i i haven't got a chance to watch them but reading about them made me want to watch them and the last thing I'll mention is uh, just before we came in here, um, Gino Marchetti, Baltimore Colts legend, um, NFL or Pro Football Hall of Famer, he died. Uh, I believe he was, I want to say he was 92 or 93, um, but he passed away. I read uh, the story that Mike Klingeman, who is, an, who is an outstanding writer for the Baltimore Sun, he's been, doing, he's been working there for a long time, and he writes lots of um, where-are-they-now type stories. Uh, he wrote the obituary for Gino Marchetti. I'm sure he had, he had much of it done long long ago but they just released it online and i read it, it's like 70 inches but my gosh it's like first of all it's a terrific he's a terrific writer and he has he sourced it incredibly but just the story of this man gino marchetti like i don't think a lot of people even our age know and appreciate what kind of an athlete he was and not only that what kind of a person he was what kind of a man he was this is a guy he fought in the battle of the bulge I mean, and then he went on to become the best defensive end in NFL history for his time. Played a made it a you know revolutionized the position really. Yeah, I mean, Ted Ted Williams was flying fighter jets in World War II. Same same sort of thing. Um, This is a guy who broke his leg in the greatest game ever played. um, Refused to leave the field because he wanted to watch his team, and so he sat. You know, they had him on the sideline with his broken. It was his broken. It was his ankle that was broken. Um, Just there are so many stories about this guy, and he ended up becoming a an entrepreneur. Uh, my dad worked at Gino's, you know, fast food restaurant. My dad was a huge Gino Marchetti guy because of that. Um, he made millions upon millions of dollars cause he sold his burger, burger chain. Um, uh, so just a really interesting guy and a great, it seemed like a great guy by all accounts. So, uh, those are three things that I really enjoyed reading yeah. in the last two days. Uh, quickly, I'm I'm looking forward uh, to uh, the rest of these NBA playoffs in this round. Um, I'm really in- intrigued by Bucks, uh, Celtics, and Rockets, Warriors, obviously. But but the main thing I wanted to dive into was a uh, scene, and I got a chance to uh, to cover uh, the uh, Nationals Padres game on Sunday for the Associated Press, and it was a crazy game. I mean, the Padres got off to a uh, a quick six nothing lead. Uh, uh, former Oriole Jeremy Hellickson got got bombed yeah. uh, right away in that game for the he's as a pitcher uh, for, uh, for the Nationals. But the Nats fought back with their with their young players. 
uh, Carter Keboom, uh, Juan Soto, and uh, Victor Robles all That's homered. Right. Yeah. It's the first time in Major League history that, that three guys, I think, 22 and under, tw- or 21 Ro- and under? Robles is 21. Yeah. Okay. I, it's the first time three guys, 21 and under, in, the, in Major League history have, have ever Insane. homered in, in, in the same game for the same team. Uh, but but the game got crazy because the Nationals came back to tie it. It was 6-6. It was in the 11th inning. And they both had short benches going into the game. And then Fernando Tatis Jr., the one of the top prospects in all Big of baseball, who, who broke into the majors this year for the Padres. He, and was who, playing, was like, who was also like 20. He was playing shortstop. He's 20 years old. And he made a stretch on a, on a play at second base, and he, and he got hurt. The Padres are basically out of players. I mean, and, 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 and for all the people that want the designated hitter in the National League, I mean, the strategy is, this is, is, what's is, great. Is, is, is like incredible in these situations. Right. Because the Padres had to take their left fielder, Will Myers, and they had to put him at first and they had to put him at third base and they moved Manny and they moved Manny Machado over to shortstop and Manny made a great defensive play uh, there to, to keep the game going there in, in, in the tenth inning. But but the Padres were doing anything they could to keep anyone hitting it to Will Myers at third base because he's an outfielder. He doesn't play the infield. So they were trying to protect Will Myers as, as much as they possibly could, and we're just praying. And even Will Myers said after the game, I was just praying that nothing was, was hit to me just because he's not he's not used to it. So, yeah. so it's sort of a cool thing to see that the, the, the strategy in baseball, and, and this wouldn't exist in the American League where you have designated hitters and you have DHs and you have bigger – or uh, obviously you have uh, – uh, the DH, but um, bigger benches. Yep. Um, so it was, it was just cool to see that bit of strategy unfold. And then the Nationals, and then sort of a journeyman type player for the Nationals, Matt Adams won won the game in the eleventh with yeah. a huge home run. He's a big so, big power hitter. Yeah, man. right. I, I think he hit that thing into the third deck of the stadium. What so. was um? So that was your you were the primary writer. And, and no, 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 no. I was I was I, I will be in a couple of weeks, okay. but I, but I was a secondary writer okay. uh, to my, our our man uh, Pat Stevens. Well, uh, you know, I hope that we can talk about it again when you, when you do get that that A assignment and you are the main guy because it's going to be weird. You're going to have guys getting quotes for you. Right, exactly. Which is yeah, because the AP really weird. the AP has two guys at these events just so they can work both teams, and the same guy doesn't have to run back and forth and potentially yeah. miss important things in one locker room or the other. They they usually assign two people uh, to all these various sporting events, whether it's the Wizards, the Capitals, just yeah. any any professional event. They want two people there just in case, and they want when big stars get hurt, they want like pull out sure. separate sidebar stories. So so. The Tatis Jr. injury didn't happen until the bottom of the 10th oh, inning. Oh, yeah. So Pat Stevens is suddenly having to scramble and file this separate story. I'm, like, looking stuff up for him because um, because awesome. cause he, cause he needs help. Um, and so, so, they so, didn't so, tap so, so they didn't tap you to do the separate story? He, no, had, to do, he had to write for, the gamer and the separate yeah, story. Yeah, for some reason they want the same person writing wow. writing all this stuff. But, um, yeah, because I said, you want me to write the, do you want me to write this story? He said, no, they, they, uh, the this per- they want the same person gotcha. covering the event to write it so so i but so i helped them look up some yeah. stuff but but all of a sudden we we're scrambling and then who knows when the game is going to end so 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 it was, awesome. it was this game that started it it um and, and they want a story about the game sure. like as it ends and then you go down and you get your quotes and then you come back and and uh dress up your story a little bit with some quotes and and you have a little more time to write then it's but, called the first lead right That's yeah what they call that. <clears throat> right so we're getting into a lot of like sports Nuts writing holes. heavy jargon uh today but um but yeah but this game started at 
135 and then all of a sudden we're scrambling here on deadline with, with all this various stuff going on so we got to have patrick stevens on this show we sometime, he, especially he, since uh well maybe around college basketball uh, i'll, 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 I'll see him again because i have another game uh, this week so I'll, I'll, I'll see if he wants to come on because yeah because he uh he covers lacrosse too uh, okay. like lacrosse is probably his second biggest area of after expertise basketball. after college basketball so um yeah, that guy, he's been around forever. He, I, I remember meeting him when yeah, he, he covered Maryland he's, basketball he's a fantastic, while he was at Maryland. He's a fantastic guy. He he knows yeah. every he knows everything and he's really on top of stuff. Well, so. that's very cool, man. Yeah. So so, so, so it, was, it was a cool thing on on Sunday. So Awesome. All right, our thanks to uh, Ron Snyder. Uh, go out and uh, check out his book. And yeah, the name of the book, once again, is – I want to make sure I get this right. A Season to Forget, the story of the 1988 Baltimore Orioles. It came out last Tuesday. It's available online and in stores. And uh, Josh and I will be back next week with who knows who. Uh, we'll, we'll, we may, See ya. We, we may surprise you. But thanks for listening. Just another sports podcast.